It is indeed. I am Kiss. I am Damon. And what we do is reshape the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. How are you, Dame? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling sharp. Feeling yeah. like I'm, I'm catching the coded language, seeing the patterns, noticing the incentives and the, the biases that are shaping the way we understand our world. I'm feeling like I'm on the ball. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling the same. And we got a little help on that today. Our guest is someone who's like razor sharp analysis in a very specific space has I think been really helpful for both of us. Uh, and I think for many other people over the last few years, his name is Alec Karakinsanis. Alec has really been doing great work in unpacking propaganda, media and journalism practices, and naming the harms of state violence, caging detention, punishment and policing. As someone who's focused on the issues that he's covered for many, many years, it still is really helpful and eye-opening just to see how deeply entrenched our information spaces are in protecting the status quo, particularly around colonial state violence. Yeah, we had a, a little bit of a limited time with him, so we didn't actually do the defining of what propaganda is. Maybe that'll be useful up top. Dame, should we work on like a working definition a little bit? Yeah, you know, propaganda as an information intended to shape opinion and inspire a certain form of action. Take out that prefix, throw a cop in there. So information that is intended to skew opinion towards the interest of policing and incarceration to protect police and entrench spaces from any type of accountability. Um, and I think a limit of the bounds of what is acceptable to name. So in addition to bias framings, leaving certain things out or omitting really important truths and histories or impacts um, that leave folks honestly ignorant and passive to the, the role that police play in our society, if not actively supportive. I think that definition will work. All right. I'll t- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was off the fly. <laughs> no, that, was, that was smooth. I put you on the spot there. Uh, you can see all of Alex's work breaking down the ways that propaganda shapes our journalism, especially at big corporate media outlets on his Twitter, at Equality Alec. He's also the founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. Before that, he was a civil rights lawyer and public defender in D.C., a federal public defender in Alabama, and co-founder of the nonprofit organization Equal Justice Under Law. As always, you can follow us at Ergo Radio. Subscribe, comment, review the show wherever you get your pods. And I think with that, let's get into it with Alec Karakinsanis. Let's get it. All right, y'all, we are so excited to be back on the line with someone whose brilliance we've been observing from afar and are so excited to get to learn more about. Alec Karakinsanis is here. Bruh, bruh, bruh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, y'all. How's it going? We're, we're, we're good. We're going to um, start with the same two-part question we start every conversation with, um, which is in this time, however you define time, this day, this hour, this season, this lifetime, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world, Alec? What a profound question to start the interview. I'm doing as well as can be, I think, in a world where there's so much wrong. And uh, I generally try to... You know, in this season and, and in general in my life, try to find all of the beauty that I can in my relationships with 
friends and family and, and colleagues and comrades and um, doing this work that we do is very difficult. The systems we're fighting against are horrific and powerful. And a lot of the time it seems like they're too powerful. And so I gain a lot of strength from doing this work with others. And so today I'm feeling particularly excited to be in the company of so many amazing human beings who are fighting against the injustices of the criminal punishment bureaucracy with me every single day. And all of the amazing artists and storytellers and organizers and amazing, amazing clients and people that we get to work with every single day to try to change the way our society thinks about not just human caging, but about these systems of pain and punishment and, and also imagining other systems of care that we could build together that can actually keep us more safe. So I hope to be able to unpack a lot of your story, but there's so much of your work that I want to focus into that I, I kind of want to get the, the the midpoint backstory. So I don't want to start going all the way from like jump. Uh, I want to contextualize your work as I've been finding it the last couple of years. So whether it be in conversation in different publications or specifically from just like a very effective, well-organized Twitter feed, um, you have been unpacking not just the way in which carceral violence and state violence impacts communities, but particularly the way in which that information is distributed, understood, messaged through traditional media platforms and, and channels. And so I want to know, like, when did you make the pivot to this season of your work? When, when did this really become the niche that you found in terms of the intersection of deconstructing propaganda in media, but also documenting the, the actual violence that communities are experiencing. For me, this pivot, and I really do think of it as a pivot because for most of my career, I thought of myself first and foremost as a lawyer, first as a public defender representing people who were accused of crimes who couldn't afford to pay for their own lawyer, faced with the horrific specter of human caging and separation from their families, and then later as a civil rights lawyer, challenging in a systemic way the practices that people in the criminal punishment bureaucracy inflict on other people every single day, prosecutors, judges, sheriffs, cops, et cetera, guards, probation officers, private companies, the way that they prey on people and use the criminal punishment system to inflict state violence in a way that is profitable to them, that, that my identity was all about fighting against those systems. And then I think, you know, largely after the murder of George Floyd, and in particular, after the way in which the elite professional classes, whether they be academics, journalists, punishment bureaucrats, uh, politicians, the way they responded to the outpouring of enthusiasm and outrage and energy around fundamentally transforming the way that this country inflicts violence through its police was a kind of a watershed moment for me in my career. I had never obviously seen anything like that level of energy that was pouring into the streets and pouring into every discussion with friends and family and coworkers for months. You know, there was this energy, there was these uprisings really had a profound impact on people's consciousness. And I think what we've saw in the corporate media and what we saw in elite spaces all over the country was a profound right-wing reaction to that energy. 
I've never seen anything like it. It was almost as if the elite class of people who owned things, including media outlets, um, decided that this moment was very threatening to a society that is as unequal as ours. And they knew that unless they engaged in a really coordinated propaganda campaign, then a lot of the basic intuitions and attitudes and assumptions and beliefs that people have about these big profitable bureaucracies of prisons, prosecutors, police, courts, right, uh, jails, that a lot of those assumptions and attitudes and beliefs and intuitions would be exploded. So there was this incredible and coordinated effort. And I first started attacking some of the ways in which prominent nonprofit organizations and academics were running interference for state violence by arguing and, and portraying uh, a lot of the demands of the social movement as too radical. The way they sort of propagandized around the concept of reducing police budgets, for example, the way they distracted people and, and changed the subject every time someone would talk about, well, why are we investing so much money in these corrupt and fraudulent and ineffective bureaucracies that don't even keep us safe? Why are we not investing in systems of care? There was incredible propaganda around that. I started to focus in on the way in which the media class, in particular the corporate media class, was translating a lot of the events that were happening and were laundering in a lot of the elite talking points that I would hear and see in the some of the other circles that I run in, the sort of wealthy political circles here in DC, the philanthropic circles, the corporate circles. Um, and I was looking at how all of these entities kind of coordinate with each other to engage in, I think, some really uh, pernicious and very harmful propaganda. That's kind of how I got interested in it. I, I saw that massive and well-funded and coordinated effort and thought that one thing I could do as someone who's a relatively privileged person in a safe position with a lot of background experience and knowledge about how these systems work, one thing I could do with my time and my energy um, and my connections, my relationships was to push back against it. And that's what I've been doing. Mm. In understanding what you on a, you know, consistent basis unpack, it's not even really reveal, like you're just naming and drawing the, the lines and connections between how articles and stories get framed. I think most people who are engaged in, in, whether you call it progressive political work, would have the the base level understanding that corporate media is a tool of propaganda for people in power. Like that's not a, a crazy idea. It is to some people, but not to everybody. So I'm curious for you in committing to the like practice and almost like ritual of unpacking the way that that happens on an article by article basis, what have you learned that you maybe didn't expect when you, when you started committing to this, even if you already had the idea of what was happening? What are some of the processes that you've seen emerge or other patterns? I think that's a difficult question because it's always hard for me to remember what I knew and what I didn't know. And, <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of things that you kind of know, you right. know, like before I was a public defender, I knew about the horrors of the criminal punishment bureaucracy, but did I really know them? You know, um, And I, I feel like I learned about them um, in new levels of depth when you're sitting in a jail cell late at night with someone trying to decide whether they're going to take a guilty plea that 
separates them from their newborn child for seven years because they were caught possessing some plant that's on a list of plants that the government says you can't possess. That's a new level of knowledge that you accumulate. Even if you knew about the war on drugs, and even if you knew about how senseless and horrific it is, when you're in that jail cell with someone and they're looking to you for your advice about what to do and what your chances are of winning if you go to trial. And you know, these are the kinds of interactions with which I started my legal career. It was a totally different kind of knowledge. And I feel like I've had a similar experience when I've been dissecting the media. I obviously knew about the role that the corporate media plays in manufacturing consent in our society, in distracting people from what really matters, in um, deciding which things count as news and which things are to be ignored at all costs, right? Um, so violence committed by powerful people is ignored routinely by the media, including violence that the U.S. and U.S. corporations commit all across the globe. And many things are, are stressed every single night on the evening news, including, you know, most prominently crime committed by poor people. And I understood those things at an intellectual level. But what I think I learned is just how deep and insidious the sort of cultural and structural and economic incentives are for people in media to perpetuate this sort of system. There's a sort of culture of journalism and there's an economics of journalism that combine to, um, uh, in really subtle ways often, determine what gets covered and, and not just what gets covered, but how it gets covered in terms of like who is quoted in the articles and whose voice is ignored and who is lifted up as an expert and whose experience is not treated as expert in any, in any way. And um, I, I got to appreciate a lot of the nuance there and to think really strategically and carefully about what are the you know, core causes of this and, and, and which of those causes can we intervene in? So for example, I'm not really well positioned to intervene in some of the profound economic realities of the journalism profession in terms of the divestment from local news, in terms of the algorithms on TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, that kind of determine the way a lot of media think about monetization of their content. But I am potentially in an important position to influence what I would think of as more like political education of journalists and getting a lot of well-intentioned, potentially, but less critically minded journalists to think about what are they doing and why? And who benefits from what they're doing and why? And how do some of the practices and habits and cultural norms that they participate in lead to and contribute to and normalize and rationalize horrific state violence? That's been really exciting to, to see just how many journalists um, are receptive to that and how many journalists are interested in fundamentally changing the way that they conceive of what is news and the way they conceive of how to inform the public about that category of things that we call news. For me, it's been a very educational experience, although it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly, you know, one or two or three discrete things that I've learned other than the thing that stands out, which is like the enormity and scope of the problem that we face with the culture and incentives around corporate news. I'm so passionate about the space where your works lies for, for many reasons. So I, I want to get to 
this dynamic of state violence and the propaganda wing that supports and amplifies it is really complex because it's unclear how much of it is just like pragmatic laziness of, you know, you have to fill a story every day and there's this whole agency that is collecting information about poor communities looking to propagate it to affirm their position, right? So there's just like a, I need a story and the cops are kind of the go-to to figure out what happened in something salacious today. And then there's like unconscious bias of folks have been socialized in the like general centered liberal conservative paradigm of believing in authority and punishment and retribution and like Western philosophy. But then there has to be at some extent like a an actual political lobbying or coordination or intentionality, whether it's through the ownership class, through middle management, that is explicitly like all of this can't just be a mistake or through ignorance. So I, I want to get a sense of like how much of it is this like liberal notion of unconscious bias, how much of it is just the pragmatism of being a day-to-day journalist, or is there a level of like elite coordination on the, the national scale that you kind of alluded to when like the, the uprisings began in 2020? I'm curious what that coordination actually looks like. That's a very important and very difficult set of questions. I think it varies a lot depending on what outlet you're talking about. So the answer to your question is really different at Fox News than it is at the New York Times. And it's really different even at CNN than the New York Times or NBC News. It's really different across different media. So local TV news has a whole different set of cultural incentives and personalities and sort of political orientations than national long-form print journalism. So the same things that shape the New Yorker's coverage of safety issues are maybe not quite the same as, you know, a local news outlet in Pittsburgh that does nightly news broadcasts on TV. So I don't want to, I don't want to give an answer for the whole profession, but, but what I will say is um, in every one of those areas that I've examined, there are a wide range of causes of the problem. I think there are, in every place I've met, people who are deeply ideologically committed to preserving the status quo inequalities in our society. They are huge fans of, and I don't think they would use these words, these are my words, but they're huge fans of you know, capitalism, of <laughs> colonialism, of that would inequalities. Be a Funny, just like like a uh, like icebreaker. Hey, I'm Daniel. I'm huge fan. <laughs> first time listener, long time listener. First time caller to capitalism. You know, absolutely. Like I don't even think a lot of these people. Uh, it's clear to me from my conversations with them, people who cover like Latin America for the major outlets who have really no clue of the role that the U.S. played in destroying Latin American democracies and propaganda campaigns there in military and intelligence campaigns there, um, really no clue of that history. So I hesitate to say they're like huge supporters of colonialism when they don't even really know a lot about what's happened, but they, they certainly are very committed to the way that the world looks now. And, and those people, you have to take a different, you know, one of the best examples of that is a, you know, a reporter at the New York Times in Herman Lopez, who, who does a lot of their writing on policing. I mean, he's a, total hack in terms of his intellectual output. I mean, it's, it's farcical and it's really amazing that he's hired by a reputable outlet, but 
he's deeply ideologically committed to the police. His reporting is incredibly biased toward the police. And he is open about that. You know, like when I've talked to him, it's, it's, it's not something he's trying to hide. Um, he's, you know, not concerned about the fact that he only quotes pro-police experts in many of his stories and only uh, introduces audiences to a certain viewpoint. Another person like that is Thomas Fuller, who is the New York Times um, San Francisco bureau chief, um, just making absolutely no effort to hide the deep contempt that he has for the poor and his deep faith in systems of human caging, et cetera. Those are, I think, in the minority in a lot of the more, what I would call neoliberal corporate outlets. I would say the vast majority of journalists aren't that cynical and that intentionally ideological in their work. They're much more creatures of the sort of incentive-based structures that they work within and creatures of sort of a lack of, of leftist political thought in the United States more generally. It's not just limited to journalists. I mean, these same problems pervade much of American society. People don't have a critical perspective on these systems or on the way that the powerful control our society. And they don't understand how power works. They have very limited understanding of politics, et cetera. That's not a knock on them. I mean, our society doesn't expose people to that in professional elite spaces. And so when these people go to all these fancy elite universities, uh, when they get into their professional worlds, they actually don't really have a lot of access to any kind of real political struggle, to a lot of the intellectual history behind those struggles. And so that's actually kind of encouraging because you know the, the majority of journalists that I've interacted with respond very well when you start having deep conversation with them and connecting a lot of these journalists to people that are most directly impacted by these systems, um, connecting journalists to academic experts who study these systems from a critical perspective. And a lot of these journalists end up changing their perspective and their point of view the more they learn about how these systems are affecting people, how their own work as journalists has caused a lot of harm how a lot of the things we're talking about now are just repeats of historical debates we've had in the past. And, and these journalists are playing a very similar role to journalists in the past who supported colonial endeavors by the United States, who supported the war in Vietnam, who, you know, like you can actually show these journalists what, what status quo proponents did at every major stage in U.S. history, whether it was the fight against slavery, whether it was the fight against Jim Crow, the fight for women to have the right to vote, the queer movements that, you know, led, led to a rethinking of, of the sort of concept of gender. I mean, at every point in, in all of these movements, whether the, you know, labor movement throughout the US, there were these same kinds of status quo, kind of well-intentioned, but extremely uninformed liberals who often play the same role in social movements. And when you like show these people that like, hey, you know what, like when Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail, and he was talking about the greatest obstacle that he's facing not being the Ku Klux Klan and the reactionary right-wing overt racist, but the, the white liberal and white moderate. When Malcolm X said the same thing, when you read James Baldwin talking about the same thing, and these are people that these journalists actually have been socialized to revere. And when you show them that these same people are actually talking about the same thing that these journalists are doing, I've had a tremendous success making relationships with journalists so much so that like a, lo a lot of my Twitter posts now most of them, you know, a lot of them come from organizers who are asking me to, to dissect a particular issue. That's most of them is that, or 
a huge percentage of them are journalists at these outlets who write me and say, look what my colleague just did. Can you post about this? You know, it'll actually really help us if I can post this on our internal Slack or if I can, you know, highlight it for them. If you write about it, it's something I can't really do. But there, there's a lot of interest within these institutions. But let me just say one final thing. I've been rambling, but just like with academia, it's not lost on these people that there's a certain range of opinions and work that they can express in the workplace safely. And there's some things that they can't say or do. There's certain topics they can't cover. There's certain you know, sources they can't quote. Academics understand there's a certain range of issues that you're much safer getting tenure and getting all the fancy chairships and the expensive grants if you steer clear of certain things. Everybody kind of knows it doesn't even need to be said to people within the media industry. You kind of know that the more you attack certain powerful and widely held people or views, the more risk you're taking for your career. So a lot of the discipline that happens is not intentional, overt, bad politics you know, discipline. It's people understand what's good for them and they understand what topics of conversation are out of bounds. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of something that we had um, Jared Ball on a few weeks ago. I mean, he, he brought this framework of sanctioned and unsanctioned narratives or sanctioned and unsanctioned positions. And I think that this is a great example of how that plays out in you named like the media and in academia of like you don't have to all be in agreement but there are kind of these boundaries that you have to live within uh, that will make your life easier and i'm really interested in that dynamic that you just described of conversations with journalists within these spaces and the kind of like not just openness but almost like excitement you're describing of being you know pushed to think critically in a different way was that kind of expected was that a, a surprise to you what were those early moves from like, I'm naming names on Twitter to some of the people that you're naming being like, I want to talk and learn? Well, I think it really happens in, in one of two ways. One is, you know, I'll name names on Twitter and they either write to me or I'll, I'll send them my thread and say, I'd love to talk with you about this. Some of them are just very defensive and some of them ignore me, but, you know, a third to half of them will respond and want to engage. More so now that I have a bigger platform. Um, there's a lot of snobbery in, in <laughs> journalism, not as much snobbery as there is in the law. Um, <laughs> I'm used to dealing with lawyers. Um, oh yeah. You, this is light work over here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Journalists are more likely to talk to me now that I have a bigger platform. And, and now that I've established myself as like a serious, good faith, well-intentioned critic, you know, I'm not making personal attacks. Like I am very aggressive in terms of like, I believe that some of what they're doing is very harmful and I don't, mince words about the harmful effects that I think their work has sometimes, but I'm not engaging in a disrespectful way that critiques them as human beings uh, in unfair ways. I'm expressing the urgency of these issues through appropriately aggressive critique, in my opinion. It's clear to them that I am passionate about what I'm doing, et cetera. The other way that I think is more productive is I'll criticize, you know, some some institution like the New York Times and other journalists from other institutions are less defensive about that. But they're doing a lot of the same things. You know, I'll do a critique about NBC News or something or Washington Post and like that critique someone from another outlet can like The Atlantic or Axios or The New Yorker, they can see that critique and not feel defensive about their own reporting or 
I'll critique one New York Times reporter and another New York Times reporter can say, that actually makes sense. And like, they don't have the emotional connection to that particular article. And so they're able to actually appreciate and internalize their critique. It's a mixed bag, but I think it's, it, it, my interactions with them tend to come from either of those two situations. And I don't want to sugarcoat it too much. I mean, a lot of these people hate me and they <laughs> hate me with a real passion. So I'm not trying to say that it's all like, you know, productive conversations that, you know, everyone gets along really well and, and they change their practices immediately. This is really hard, long work. And we're fighting against kind of a relentless propaganda in our culture and in journalism institutions generally. And when you critique people, they develop all kinds of defense mechanisms to put up walls. So, you know, oh, this person's not even a journalist. How arrogant is it for someone who's not even a journalist to critique the way we cover police? Portraying my Twitter threads as arrogant when I point out certain media practices is a defense mechanism. It's a way of not engaging with the substance of the critique by critiquing the messenger. We all have an instinct to do that. You know, If a journalist started criticizing the kinds of legal arguments I'm making in court, my first instinct might be to be like, wait a second, like this person doesn't know anything about what I'm doing, you know, but like we owe it to all of the human beings in our society, particularly the most vulnerable people in our society who are the most affected by these violent government corporate systems. We owe it to be more courageous than that, more humble, more open to critique. And so I make a point of like, if anyone critiques anything I do, and it's actually pretty rare for someone to critique like on the on the substance of what I write. I almost never, I can't even remember a single time this year when someone has critiqued the substance of anything that I've done on Twitter. All of the critiques that I can remember are things like the tone of this critique is like too aggressive or it's too personal or it's arrogant or there's very little engagement with the substance. But when 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 there is substantive engagement with how we're doing our legal work from other lawyers or from organizers. It's absolutely essential that you be humble enough and open enough to that critique because we always at all times can be doing so much better than we are. We need to hear that. So to that point of a need to do better, you so accurately and eloquently, I think, describe how this, this narrative trajectory impacts public consciousness. And so I want to, as you know, we're, we're getting close to winding down, go to like the impact of that. Like the things you're naming are not just bad because like, oh, this is sucky journalism, right? Like this is, there are devastating consequences. So just to give a little context of like the show and where we are for folks listening, this is, we're recording this in December of 2022. And so Alec, for you, right? Like our show is connected to the response to the folks myself and our community that organized the response to the release of the Laquan McDonald video or uh, pushed and created the defund CPD campaign. You know, one thing that's being reported is that this year, 2022, there have been the most police killings on record. Um, And just I want to say yesterday, if not yesterday, the day before, you did a really interesting thread on the increase in PR investment the Chicago Police Department has gotten um, since specifically the murder of Laquan McDonald and how they've expanded their propaganda, not retreated, or as folks are saying, like defund is taking over the country, budgets such as the Chicago Police Department and police departments elsewhere are expanding, not contracting or freezing. And so where are things now and what discernment should communities or audiences 
deploy to try to push back or resist this expansion of violence? Things are in a very dire place. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I think we're still in that moment where there was a very effective reactionary backlash to a social movement. And that reactionary backlash was enormously effective. I focus a lot in my own thinking and work on the role that well-intentioned or low-information liberals and moderates play in this process. Because I think what's happening at all times in politics is competing for those low-information and well-intentioned people. The right is competing for them, trying to trick them into supporting things that are going to destroy the most vulnerable people in our society and increase inequality. And the centrists are competing for them. You know, the Democratic Party is competing for them all the time, trying to, you know, in the police context, you know, post Laquan McDonald and post George Floyd, what those well-intentioned and low-information people in Chicago needed to hear is that we're on this, you know, we're going we're gonna to figure out how to make this Chicago Police Department less violent. We're going to bring some accountability. We're going to, you know, increase trust between the community and the police. You know, we're going to bring body cameras and we're going to have community policing. They need to hear that kind of thing because if the Chicago mayor's office had come out and said, we're proud of what the police did with Laquan McDonald. And we're proud of the record number of police killing. We're proud of what the police did in Adam Toledo. So much so, we're not going to change a single thing. If they actually said that, they would lose those middle-of-the-road, well-intentioned, or low-information, moderate liberal people. Now, obviously, the Chicago Police Union, the mayor, the police department had no intention of meaningfully changing anything after Laquan McDonald or Adam Toledo, but they couldn't say that. And so what do they do? They get a bunch of like fancy academics, like the U Chicago Crime Lab, which is one of the most pernicious institutions in the in the country. They get um, fancy, you know, academics. They get journalists, and they all sort of talk about these vague notions of reform and like this police community relations. They talk about something called community policing, which is really just counterinsurgency. It was developed with tactics from the U.S. military and the French military in Algeria and Vietnam. I mean, the whole point of that is to trick population, trick a native colonial population into thinking that the colonizers have their best interests at heart. And the way they do that is they co-opt key members of the marginalized group. You know, this is one of the main purposes of identity politics. This co-optation has been very successful. You've got people like Ben Crump and Al Sharpton going all over the country supporting the most violent and corrupt and racist systems imaginable. Yeah, some people love getting co-opted, actually. They do. <laughs> some well, people are like, let me, let me get money. some of that. Dinner is yeah. way better once you get co-opted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the quantity of caviar increases exponentially. That's exactly right. Um, I mean, there's no bigger booster of the police, right? And and Ben Crump is, is a hack who's shilling for the for-profit bail industry. Now, he actually tried to stop our misdemeanor bail settlement in Houston, Texas, which is getting 19,000 or so people out of jail every single year just because they can't pay um, small amounts of cash in minor cases. I mean, the, the level of cynicism here is incredible. You know, when, when bail reform was first you know, moving a few years ago, the bail industry paid for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Dr. King's organization, to mm. oppose bail reform mm. on the theory that there were lots of Black-owned bail bond companies, and it was a mm, racial justice yeah. issue. So dark. 
it's very, very dark stuff, but the level of cynicism, people are capable of anything, you know? And so what I want to focus on is like, how do we do widespread mass political education of persuadable people? And how do we inoculate them against some of the relentless co-optation and, and de-radicalizing propaganda that, that police and their allies and people in power are constantly bombarding them with? I think we have a lot of work to do, but we've also made a lot of progress. And I'm encouraged by how many young people there are out there that like really do get it and are organizing, are doing reading groups together, political education together, you know, freedom dreaming together court watching together, doing mutual aid work together. These are the kinds of things that we need to get more and more and more and more young people, more and more and more retired people, more and more people in general coming into these spaces together. And that's the only chance we have. Beautiful. Yeah. And I think the the type of critical eye and like razor sharp precision that you have is a, a really helpful guiding post toward one like keeping vigilant to that, but also it's just such a meaningful entry point, I think, for folks, because even if you're not engaging with movement, you're engaging with media. And then once you start seeing it there, you start seeing it all around. Um, thank you so much, one, for for talking with us, but also for the work that you've been doing and that kind of vigilance that you've been bringing. It's been helpful for our critiques and I'm sure for so many others. So appreciate you. Thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. Where can folks find you in the ways that you'd like to be found? Uh, you can find our work uh, at civilrightscore.org or at civrightscore on social media. Uh, you can also find me at Equality Alec on Twitter. And also I write something called Alec's Copaganda Newsletter where I dissect these issues in more depth and that's on Substack. So you can just search for my name in Substack or Alec's Copaganda Newsletter and and um, you can read about some of this stuff in more depth if you're interested. And I also wrote a book called Usual Cruelty. And if you're a teacher or you send books into prisons, the book is free for all your students and anyone you want to send it to in, in inside prison. So um, you can DM me on Twitter, then I can connect you with our publisher and we can get the book Usual Cruelty out. The rest of you can purchase it. None of the royalties go to me. Um, they all go to an amazing organization. But yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to connecting with, with you all more. Appreciate you. We're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And we will be back on the line soon, reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. Much love to the people. Peace.